Over the past few weeks, we've been rooted in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and, and the story of 1 Samuel, just for a little recap, if you're joining us uh, right in the middle of this series, is, is that it takes place in a day and age when corruption and injustice was rampant throughout the land of Israel. From the priesthood to politics, the whole people were, were summed up in this description from Judges 21-25. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Hope seemed lost for this nation, and this is the setting that we're introduced to this woman named Hannah. Like Israel, Hannah felt hopeless about her situation. She was married to a man named Elkanah, but she was unable to have children. But Hannah, in her distress, cried out to the Lord, and he granted her a son. She named this son Samuel, and he would go on to be part of God's plan to honor Hannah, to rescue Israel, and to be the maker of kings, one of whom would point to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off in 1 Samuel chapter 4. This section is actually four chapters long, far too much scripture for me to preach, but it's too fine a passage for me to butcher and to chop up into lots of little pieces. So in an effort to try and do this passage justice, our friends Tommy and Elizabeth and Emily and Noah, Micah, just Micah Micah and dad hugging Micah. Uh, are going to help us with a dramatic reading of the passage. And every once in a while, I'm going to interject some commentary, so maybe shed some light on weird things like golden tumors and stuff like that that are coming up in the passage. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, and then you're going to have a part two. So there'll be points in the, in the reading where the screen will say congregation shout or uh, things like that. And so pay attention because it's, it's interactive, all right? All right, let's pray and then we will get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for preserving your word for us. That thousands of years after these events took place, we have a record that is so much more than a historical record, but it is a living word that speaks to us today. Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us through this amazing story. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing that uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp. 
Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli, sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. What happened, my son? Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, out of breath, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. We don't really know why the Philistines and Israelites were fighting in this war, but it shouldn't surprise us at all. The Philistines came from the Aegean area near Greece. They were a seafaring people, and then they came to the land of Palestine, and they were technologically advanced compared to the Israelites, Canaanites, Ammonites, and the other settlers there. Slowly but surely, these Philistines conquered tribal leader after tribal leader. The people of Israel at this time in history were more of an affiliation of tribes than they were a nation, and they were outmatched by the Philistines. The whole book of Judges tells us that when the Israelites were in trouble, they would cry out to God, and God would rescue them by raising up leaders called judges. And sometimes these men and women judges were filled with supernatural powers to defeat the Philistines. But every time after there was peace, the Israelites would turn back to idolatry and they would forget about God and he would withdraw his protection and they would get beaten down again. That's likely the context of the story we're going through this evening. Rather than crying out to God for help this time, the people try and take matters into their own hands. They take the Ark of the Covenant, this, this box that housed the Ten Commandments and was the most sacred item in Israelite worship. The Ark was a symbol of God's power and presence. Its purpose in the act of worship was to remind worshipers that God is with them and that God is holy and that God is good. The Ark was supposed to help people relate to God. When they saw it, they were to, to remember his law and his holy presence and to be filled with awe and wonder. Instead, it seems like the Israelites didn't want a relationship with God. They wanted to put him in a box and use him for their own purposes. 
they thought that if they took the ark into battle, they would automatically win, but they were wrong. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of, the of God has been captured. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. So the Israelites thought that they could just take the Ark of the Covenant into battle and God would automatically give them a victory. The problem is, of course, that they forgot to invite God to the battle. God doesn't live in a box made by human hands. God isn't an idol created to serve us. So the Philistines get the ark because of Israel's bad example. They think, just like the Israelites were acting, that God is in the box, in the ark of the covenant. And so in their minds, they had just defeated Yahweh, Israel's God. As was the custom in those days, they brought the fallen idol, in this case the ark of the covenant, into the temple of their god, Dagon. There in the city of Ashdod. Dagon's temple was large with huge pillars in the doorway. In ancient Near Eastern mythology, Dagon was the, the father of Baal. Maybe you've heard of Baal, the, the god of the Canaanites and other Ugaritic peoples. Anyway, Dagon's statue was massive. It was huge. And the Philistines placed the Ark of the Covenant right at Dagon's feet as if to say, you are subservient, Yahweh, to our god, Dagon. But the next day, of course, we read that they come into the temple to worship and to gloat, and what the heck? Dagon's face down. Face down, face right by the ark, as if paying homage to Yahweh. So they prop up their massive idol. They go on with their worship. The next day they come back, and they find that Dagon is not only on his face, but his face isn't on his body anymore. In fact, his hands representing his power to act, and his head representing his life, are where? They're on the threshold, as if saying, get me out of here. Escaping the presence of Yahweh. When we talk about the living God, the one we worship in the person of Jesus, we are not talking about some dead historical figure. We're not talking about an invention of an ancient religion. We're not talking about a good luck charm, 
or a statue of the Virgin Mary bobblehead on our dashboard so we don't get in wrecks. We're not talking about superstition. We're talking about the all-powerful, untamable, sovereign over all things, maker of all, Savior and Lord. The living God is for us. He is good, but he is not stuck in our religion and he's not stuck in our books or in our Christ candles or in our best wishes. And I think this passage invites us to check ourselves. If you can put God in a categorical box and expect him to serve you because you do certain religious things, you might be worshiping a God, but you're not worshiping the living God described in scripture and revealed to us in the person of Jesus. The God revealed in Jesus is wilder than we settle for and better than we could hope for. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. Hey, Philistines, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. If you return the ark of the God of Israel... Do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. What guilt offering should we send to him? Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country, and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you, and your gods, and your lands. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready, with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. And in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory, toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, 
but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. This deserves some explanation, right? Some weird stuff, golden rats and tumors and golden tumors. I don't even know what that looks like. Um, you can't make this stuff up, right? Um, most scholars believe that this wasn't, too, like when I hear tumor, I think of a cancerous growth or something. Uh, probably what this was, was uh, some form of bubonic plague. So you've got some kind of open sores, some big sores on the body, uh, which would explain the rats, which carried the fleas, which carried the disease. So the two kind of go together. Interesting side note. Tommy thinks I should share about the cattle in the cart. So this is kind of interesting. You heard the thing about the two new cows that had calved, and then they put the calves in pens. Anyone raised animals before? When you have new babies, you want to be by them, right? So if you hook these two cows who have never had a yoke before to a cart, and you send them that way towards Beth Shemesh, which is in Israel, but their calves are in pens back here, and they're producing milk, where do you think they want to go? right? They want to go this way. The test was to see if the plagues were really from Yahweh. So these diviners said, you should put these new cows on this cart. If they take the cart to Israel, you'll know that the God of Israel is behind this. And sure enough, that's what they do, right? Uh, it's very unnatural for them to go that way rather than back to their babies, okay? The plagues were a lot like those unleashed on the Egyptians. Remember those? Um, in the Exodus story. And, and just like in that story, the plagues were not intended to be a condemning punishment on the Philistines. If God wanted to condemn the Philistines to death, he could have just wiped them all out. Think Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven. God knows how to do stuff when he wants it done. Um, the plagues were actually a form of revelation, of communication. They were designed to get the attention of the Philistines to let them know that God was not one of their local idols who could be manipulated into doing their bidding. He was showing them that he and he alone is worthy of worship and superior over all other gods. If you remember the Exodus story, some of Pharaoh's advisors in his court actually recognized the greatness of Yahweh and recognized his mastery over all of the magicians and uh, religious people and spiritual leaders of Egypt. And when finally Pharaoh let the, Egyptian, or the Israelites leave Egypt, I don't know if you remember this part, but several Egyptians from leadership to the, slave, uh, to the lower class actually went out with Israel. They actually joined the Israelites walking into the desert and became part of those people. Why? Because they recognized that Yahweh was superior to their gods. And how did they know that? It was through the power of those plagues. So naturally, the Philistines want to get rid of the ark and the plagues. So they perform what's called an oracular mechanism. That's, isn't that ridiculous? Like there's actually stuff uh, in scholarship called oracular mechanism. What that means is this. The spiritual leaders would try and appease the God who had sent the plague by making an offering of gold or silver or something precious in the form of the plague. So if uh, God had sent a bunch of locusts to kill their, their crops, maybe they would have made some gold or silver locusts, put them on the cart, send them to Israel, right, to try and appease the God. 
Um, in this case, of course, they put these tumors or sores, which I still don't, you can't even conceptualize without, it's just a blob of gold or something. For those of you who know a little bit about how God works, is that ever a, a commandment you've ever heard of? Does God, uh, does Jesus call us to do things like that? Or, or, or did God ever say, okay, in order to be redeemed by your, from your sin, um, you have to make a gold representation of the sin that you did and then offer it to God? Does that sound familiar? No, it's not familiar. It's, a, it's quite a pagan uh, activity. Um, it's a pagan way of viewing the world, the spiritual world, but it's what the Philistines knew. That was their religion. That's how they viewed the world. Now, here's the amazing thing, and this is important for us to pick up on. God doesn't condemn them for what they don't know. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't condemn them for what they don't know. After all, the people called out to tell the whole world about who God really is were the Israelites, right? And their theology was screwed up. They thought God was in a box and that he was going to march them out. They're going to march them out to, to make a victory, right? No wonder people watching Israel had screwed up theology too. In his grace and in his desire to have the whole world, all the nations and all the people come into intimate relationship with him, God worked through their unorthodox unbiblical, theologically incorrect way of appeasing God. He spoke to them on their own terms, not because they were right, but because he is loving and because he's gracious. I don't know if you've ever heard of stories about tribal people who haven't been reached by the gospel yet, and they're sitting there praying. There's a story in um, north of Nova Scotia, one that stands out to me. It still gives me goosebumps. Uh, it was a people who already had kind of a Trinitarian view of their tribal gods. One was a seal god, and one was a polar bear god, and one was a whale god. And there, in, uh, in prayer, the shaman is, is, is doing his thing, and, and everyone is praising, and he says, stop, I've, I've had a vision. And Jesus shows up in the vision. And Jesus, so anyway, 10, 12 years later, a missionary, a white missionary, finally goes up to this tribe and makes contact and starting to tell the gospel story about the triune God and about Jesus. And they're like, oh yeah, we already know about Jesus. How do you know about Jesus? You don't have a Bible? No missionaries? You've never met a white person before? Uh, no, he, he showed up to our, our thing, to our power. You know? so, so sometimes God just breaks in. And I've said this before, but in, in populations where the uh, Christianity is illegal or, or unreached, do you know the number one way people come to Christ is through dreams and visions? amazing. You can't, you can't contain God in a box. And he's going to reach out. And this gives me such confidence, joy, appreciation that the people in my life, and you've got them in yours too, who just feel like they're never going to come to Christ. Like their heart is so hard or so cold or they're so set in, in not believing. This reminds me, you know what? God could, he, first of all, God worked his way into my life somehow and into yours somehow, and you know your mind. But he has a way of working through any means necessary to get to people. Now, I want to say this as a pastor of, of your church here. Um, this isn't an excuse for sloppy theology or, or for not learning. We're talking about people who have never heard before. So, um, thankfully, God can speak to us with our bad Christian theology, but he can also speak to people who we think don't have a clue. 
And so let's keep praying for people who we've maybe written off mentally because they're not written off to God. And if he can reach these Philistines through golden rats and tumors, he can reach us and our friends and our loved ones. Amen? Yeah, just kind of uh, went off script, but that's okay. I'm going to stop there. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors that the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord, one each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers, the fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the Ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the Ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came up and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not, do not stop, stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic 
that they were routed before the Israelites. And the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Could we get a hand for our readers? <laughs> In this last part of the passage, the Israelites seem to have learned their lesson. Instead of assuming God as a talisman or a good luck charm and trying to bring him back into battle, they ask Samuel to cry out on their behalf. They're reestablishing a relationship with God. They're admitting their own weakness, their own inability to defeat the Philistines on their own. This requires relationship and trust. Like Moses interceding for the people in the wilderness, so Samuel stands in the gap between Israel and Yahweh. And Samuel does two things. First, he offers a sacrifice of an unblemished lamb for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. There in the presence of God, the people confessed their, uh, their sins. And the sacrifice was an atonement to forgive their sins to cover their debt. Many, many years later, of course, Jesus would be known as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. He would be the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sin, not just of the Israelites, but for all people, including you and including me. The story of Samuel, we see once again, points us toward the story of Jesus. Second, Samuel did more than merely call the people to confess. Confession of sin is an essential first step, but more is required. And that, that more is called repentance. It's called change, a turning from sinful behavior and a turning toward trust and obedience in God. Samuel called the Israelites to turn away from their idols so that they could once again trust in God alone. And repentance requires action. They actually burned and destroyed their idols. And this time when the Philistines came to fight them, they didn't trust in their idols. They cried out to God who rescued them. That's an act of repentance. In the previous story, they put God in a box, they brought the ark into battle, and they lost. They not only confessed that that was wrong, but they changed their ways. This time when they're confronted with the Philistines, they cry out in an act of desperation and relationship with God. Now, 
You probably don't, maybe you do, you probably don't have stone or gold idols sitting around your house that tempt you regularly to worship them. Our idols in this culture, in this day and age, seem to be more subtle. They're revealed, maybe most often, in our functional atheism. We see the idols of our autonomy, our control. We make our decisions in life, and then we ask God to bless them. The Israelites tried to put God in a box. We maybe struggle more with thinking of God as a rubber stamp to agree with everything that we've already decided to do in life. And I just want to offer us a, an opportunity to do the two things that Samuel has invited us to do. To have a time of silence where we can confess those things, those idols in our life. Maybe it's the illusion of control. Maybe it's a rubber stamping type relationship with God. And ask him to show you one step that you can make in the right direction. Let's take a moment. Lord, on the surface, this passage about arcs and ancient battles and golden tumors and rats seems so far distant from where we are. But I thank you that your word speaks to us today and that it actually hits quite at home for me and I suspect for quite a few others. Lord, would you receive these confessions of our grasping at control of our trusting in, um, in our own idols in this world instead of truly relying on you. Lord, the saddest thing is, is that when we do that, we, we break our relationship with you, that we, we don't actually draw close to you, we don't actually trust you. So forgive us, Lord, and help us, help us to have hearts that are softened toward you that desire you more than they did when we walked in this door.